When I was young and growing up, which is a while ago, um, board games were a frequent pastime in our family, and many a wet day, usually in a caravan, were spent playing our favorite games. And I had a few that I loved. My Monopoly was probably my first love. My parents say I was very competitive. I had what I like to think was a healthy desire to perform well and succeed. I suspect they remember it differently. But Monopoly was awesome. First, I had to be the car. And then it was a rush to get Park Lane and Mayfair, set up an empire, make my fortune at my family's expense. Next came risk. The goal being world domination, crushing my family into submission. And some games went on for days on end, literally, with this unquenchable thirst for power. It was fantastic. But one game I really loved that seemed to combine both the desire for success in terms of wealth and power and succeeding at what you do was the game of life. Does anyone remember it? You started out as a youth, and you had to succeed as you went along the board. How good an education you got determined the salary you got throughout the game. Having a house and job and family all scored well for you, and you got rewarded for community service and good deeds. But there were downsides too. You landed on some spaces and there were accidents, some cards dealt you job difficulties and loss. But the aim was to retire and get to millionaire estates. And the winner? Well, it was the person with the most assets when all the dollars were counted at the end. Doesn't it sound depressingly familiar? Now, as an adult, I can't imagine why I ever enjoyed that game, and I wouldn't play it now. Or do I? This series in James, which David introduced for us last week, has the very apt title of Keeping It Real. James is immensely practical, and yes, there are biblical truths and theological principles in his letter, but most of it is about how to practically live your life for God in the real world. So let's turn to James chapter 1, and if you're using the Red Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1213. And as we often do in Windsor here, let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. So James chapter 1, verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth 
through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Do take your seats. So the heading for tonight's message is persevering through the real game of life. And we're going to look at it under three headings. Playing the hand you're dealt, fighting the inner battle, and reaching the prize. And whilst on the surface the theme and the points might sound lighthearted, what we're going to look at is how we cope, survive, but more than that, how we also continue to persevere and serve God through the really difficult trials and obstacles that can come from outside and within ourselves. So firstly, playing the hand you're dealt. Last week, David explored how we could consider it pure joy when we find ourselves in trials and the difficulties of that. He helped us think about perseverance and how it leads to growth in our lives and the need for wisdom from God in all of this. And this week, as you can see from what we've read, James continues the theme of persevering through the trials of life, but with a slightly different perspective and a different goal in mind. In the early part of the chapter, James told us that we would face trials of many kinds, and he tells us that that testing of our faith develops perseverance, and that perseverance helps us to mature and be complete. He seemed to have in mind the trials and troubles and tribulations of life. However, here in verses 9 to 12, he brings a different slant to it. Instead of looking at significant troubles and tribulations, he looks at what can be considered the fairly ordinary and routine circumstances and realities of life, which also can be a trial and test our perseverance. In James' time, as in ours, there were those who were counted rich, and there were those less well-off who were living in humble circumstances. This was a normal reality of life. It still is. Well, what does James say to those in each situation? Firstly, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't tell the person in humble circumstances how to escape their low financial status and rise out of it. Neither does he tell the rich what to do with their abundance. And whilst the Bible in other places might give helpful instruction in such regard, James isn't primarily interested in that here. And also, he doesn't rate one situation as being better or worse than the other. They're both mentioned because they can both, in different ways, be a test of our faith and perseverance. And that's James' key focus here. I know most of us don't like tests, but perhaps you're sitting here thinking that you you wouldn't really mind a crack at the test of persevering under the trial of being rich. But anyway, let's see what James says to each. What James is encouraging both parties in their different situations is to view their economic status not the way the world does, but in a Christian, countercultural way. To those in humble circumstances who no doubt struggle with little resource, making ends meet, trying to provide for their loved ones, he tells them to take pride in their high position. What does he mean? He's reminding them to look above and beyond what they see in their daily lives, to look beyond the seemingly little resource that they may have in worldly terms. He reminds them who they are in Christ, that they have a high position. They have the dignity and privilege of being a child of God, 
He's encouraging them not to measure their worth by the standards of the world and not to see their identity as being bound up in what is in their bank balance. What they have outwardly is temporary. What they have inwardly is permanent and unshakable. We can think that it is the rich who face the trial of being materialistic. But it can equally affect those of us who may have little, as we may place excessive value on increasing our own material standard. The desire for wealth can be as threatening as the reality of actually possessing it. That's not what we're to take pride or joy in, according to James. What about the rich? The person who's been blessed with material resources in this world also should not measure their worth by such worldly standards. Again, their identity should not be bound up by the bottom line of their asset sheet. Rather, the rich brothers and sisters should remember their low position. They should remember that they are sinners who have been lifted up and redeemed and rescued by the grace of God, which never had anything to do with their bank balance. They're no better than anyone else, and they need to consciously seek to overcome the deceitfulness of riches and not tie their feelings of self-worth to their possessions. The poor need uplifting. The rich need humility. And if either focuses their self-worth or identity on how much or little they have in this world, they're in danger of succumbing to this trial. I'm sure a lot of you use social media to some extent or other. And I'm sure you've all got friends, real or virtual, who post these lovely, amazing, beautiful photos showing off just how great their lives are, or rather, how great they wish their lives were and hope you believe it. Anyway, it's amazing I find how two people can take a picture, a photo of a lovely scene, and there'd be such a difference between how the photo looks whenever it's posted wherever. And I've noticed on my phone on Instagram, I have many filters that I can use. And it's great, because I can take a mediocre photo of a nice scene and make it look so much better to be the envy of all my so-called friends. But similarly, I can pick a filter that makes a lovely scene appear dull and gray and uninspiring. How you actually see it is all about the filter or the lens you use. And James is making the same point here. What filter or lens do we use when we evaluate our lives? James uses the lens of eternity. In verse 11, he explains why we aren't to value ourselves according to our possessions. It's very simple. They don't last. They're temporary. They fade. They're burned up. They do not provide security no matter how much we think they do. Our financial situation is one of many normal situations in our lives that can bring trials. It is a common and key one, which is probably why James chose it. But there are others. There are people who are very intelligent and people who are less academic. 
There are people who are exceptionally physically capable and gifted, and there are those who haven't a sporting bone in their body. There are those who are popular and in demand. There are those who are lonely. There are those who, in the world's eyes, are deemed beautiful, and there are those who have a very good personality. But joking aside, we can see there are lots of normal variations in life, all of which can be a trial to us as we wrestle with where we are on those various spectrums. How do we view all these situations that make up our life? They're temporary, James says. It's not that each of these things means nothing to us, but it mustn't mean everything to us. Because James holds up to us what it is that we should be looking towards and moving towards and desiring and hoping for. It's not wealth, beauty, success, achievement, popularity, or comfort. The truly blessed man or woman, according to verse 12, is the one who perseveres, who keeps going despite the trials, despite what the world might say we're lacking and should be pursuing. We leave that behind. We set it aside. We don't base our worth and identity in those things because we have a greater hope within us. We have the hope and the promise of the crown of life. Why persevere? In verse 4, James told us that in the present, now it brings us to maturity. He adds here in verse 12 that it brings blessing, yes, for the present, but even more so, it brings an eternal hope, a crown that is not subject to decay or loss. This echoes the familiar verses from the start of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The crown of life is real life, fulfilled life. There's blessing now and forever in eternity. The crown of life speaks of our dignity and position in Christ. It speaks of being the victor, claiming the prize of gladness and rejoicing, the reward for faithful endurance. There's only one other place in the Bible, I believe, that speaks of a crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And this must affect how we live now. Alec Mateer, writing on this passage, says, life's pleasant paths are made all the sweeter as we keep in mind that they lead to this great spiritual end. Life's grim moments are to be endured patiently, remembering that patience and persistence turn sorrows into stepping stones. Who is it that can look forward to this wonderful crown of life? 
At the end of verse 12, James says, God has promised this to those who love him. Do you love him? Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Do you know him? Can you look forward to this crown of life? So secondly then, let's look at fighting the inner battle. So far, James has been speaking about outward trials and situations. Now he moves to the realm of the inner battle. He's urged us to respond to trials by persevering and enduring faithfully, but he's aware of the danger we may face, particularly in the midst of facing trials. Okay, I want you to imagine two different days in your life. The first started great. You had a fantastic night's sleep, and it was one of those rare days that you bounced out of bed, ready to take on the world, and the day just got better and better. Your work was fulfilling and satisfying. You were valued and appreciated by everyone, even by the pigs flying past the blue moon in the sky. You came home, enjoyed a lovely meal with your family, and afterwards, there was this lovely but really wicked death by chocolate cake sitting there. Hold that thought for a moment, and I know I've just lost some of you forever now, but let's try again. You tossed and turned, and just as you were getting into a deep sleep, the miserable alarm went off. You got soaked walking into work, only to find that your computer had lost all the work you did yesterday. Everyone was on your back and complaining, and it just got worse. You got home late because some wonderful drivers had caused fender benders on the motorway again. And you arrived in having missed the family dinner, and a congealed remnant awaits you on your plate. But then you turn around and spot this lovely but really wicked death by chocolate cake sitting there. So, okay, tell me, on which of those days are you more likely to resist the urge to overdo it on the cake front? On which of those days do you think you might be more likely to give in to the temptation to somewhat overindulge and destroy that chocolate cake? And I know for some people it might happen no matter how good or how bad the day has been, but you get the point. James knows it is when we are down, so to speak, when we're facing significant trials in our lives, that we may also be prone to suffer internal trials in the form of temptation. Temptation is a reality. James starts verse 13 with, when tempted. It will happen. When we're struggling, when we're in the midst of trials, which can range from the relatively minor ones I illustrated there, to the most horrendous and difficult life situations. In the face of such, how do we respond when we're tempted? So often, we can justify it. That's why it's called comfort eating. We feel we are due the comfort. We feel we should be given more latitude and license as we're facing terrible trials. We should be cut some slack. It's not our fault. So often, in the face of temptation our autom- and sin, our automatic response is to blame shift. We see it clearly with children. Why did you punch your sister? It's not my fault. She was breathing my air, and she looks funny. 
But we can do the same. Right back in the Garden of Eden, why did you eat the fruit? It's not my fault. It's the woman you put here with me. No, it's not my fault either. It was the serpent who made me do it. Sometimes we might even directly blame God. It's not my fault. I can't help it. If you hadn't made my life like this, I wouldn't have done it. James makes it very clear. God does not tempt us. God is not tempted to be evil. He does not tempt anyone. God does not plan to harm us or to cause us to sin. Where does the voice of temptation come from? And firstly, note, James has no mention here for Satan and evil demonic forces. Yes, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, and in chapter 4, James will give mention to the devil, we know that evil spirits and Satan can clearly be a part of tempting us to sin. But there's no mention of them here. Where does the voice of temptation come from? It comes from within. James says, each one is tempted by his own desire, dragging him away to sin. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We have a fallen, sinful nature that loves to sin. Toying with wrong desire and temptation is a very dangerous part of the real game of life. Have you ever done something so wrong and sinful that you are thoroughly ashamed and cannot believe how you ever got to that point. Something you were sure you would never do. If you can't quite identify with that, then let's consider another scenario. Have you ever known a fellow Christian to have done something so wrong and sinful that you could never imagine yourself doing that? Not in a million years. And let me put it to you that if you're only identifying with that second scenario, then James's words are especially pertinent to you, and you need to beware. There are things we might think of doing, but we would never, ever do them. Look at what James tells us. We're tempted. Our desire is aroused, and this desire drags us away. It speaks of being dragged off course. Our attention is diverted from where it should be, and we consider the desire. We think about it, but we still wouldn't do it. But we let the desire fester. We feed the thoughts. We are enticed by it, but we would never do it. Verse 15, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Just as conception is the start of a process that will result in birth, so desire leads just as clearly to sin. And sin, James says, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's all one process, one leading to another. 
Wrong desires must not be entertained in case it sets an unstoppable process in motion. We might think we can stop any time we want. What does it mean that sin gives birth to death? For the Christian who knows and loves God, does this mean that they can forfeit their salvation? Does it mean they can risk their eternal life? No, not at all. The Bible is abundantly clear on that. Jesus in the Gospel of John makes it clear that no one can snatch his people out of his hand and that he will lose none of those that God has given him. But in this situation for the Christian, death may be speaking of a diminishing of life, that we may forfeit the fullness and wholeness of life, that we are not maturing as Christians, but the way we are living is embracing the way of death. For the person who is not a Christian, who does not know and love God, the somber reality of the teaching of the Bible is that their sin, if not forgiven by God, will lead to death, eternal punishment. James underlines how important this is in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Don't kid yourselves. Don't pretend you can deal with deadly desire and cope with it. This is pastoral beseechment with loving urgency. Don't write this off. Don't think you won't fall. Don't think you won't be like others who have fallen. Don't think it won't happen to you. When we face trials, how will we respond? When temptation comes, which it will, especially when we're laid low, how will we respond? It is a reality of the real game of life that the upward path is demanding, but the downward path is easy. Thirdly, and more briefly then, reaching the prize. You may be feeling a bit weathered and even growing down as we've thought about trials, enduring, persevering, facing temptation, fighting desire, and the dangers of sin. And James probably assumed the same of his first readers, so he encourages us again to lift our gaze and look to God. Look at verses 17 and 18. How do we avoid the downward pull of sin from within? How can we be strong enough to persevere? God. He's not the author of temptation. He doesn't provoke us to evil. Instead, He is the source of all good. Every good and perfect gift in life is of God. The way it is written is like saying the gifts are perfect and the way they are given is good. What He does and the way He does it is perfect. Everything good that we need is in Him and from Him. If we come to God in our need, He will fulfill what we need. We so often forget this. We lose our focus. We get distracted. But look at the contrast. Whereas the riches or possessions we own are temporary and will not last, our God is the giver who does not change. He is the Father of the heavenly lights. He is the Creator. And unlike His creation, He will not change. Unlike everything around us in life, 
he will not change. He will not let us down. When we talk about the gifts that God gives us, we sometimes mainly think about the material blessings he gives. And yes, certainly we should and must give thanks to God for his daily provision for us. But James has so much more in mind here. In verse 18, he focuses on the greatest gift of all. God has given us new birth through the word of life. We are so precious to him that we are the best of his creation, the first fruits. There's no greater gift than new birth, new life in Christ, having our sins forgiven, having all the wrong in our lives wiped clean from the slate of accusation built up against us. Being given a new nature, a new heart, and being given the promise and the hope of the crown of life. When we deserve the exact opposite. While we were enemies of God, sinners, he sent his son to die for us and bring us life. Our God is good. There's no doubt. Why did he save us? He chose us in love and grace. Knowing this, remembering this, bringing ourselves back to this, refocusing on this, on the great truth of our new birth and new life in Christ is the context James wants us to have as we face the trials and difficulties of this life, as we face the pull of the inward desire towards sin. And yes, we may face horrendous trials, awful tragedy in life. We may face the most difficult, heartbreaking situations that may cause us to wonder what God is doing. Why is He letting this happen? What purpose can this have? Why wouldn't God have stopped this? There are most likely people here tonight in the midst of such situations. It might be you. You can't understand what is happening. You can't understand what God is doing. You can't get your head around it. You cry out, but there seems to be no answer. And so often that is how life can be. In our family life, We've known both the challenge of severe illness and also heartbreaking tragedy. And I'll be honest, in the midst of it, I reeled against God crying out, why? Why would you let this happen? couldn't understand it, and I still can't. And we may never have the answers to these questions in our lives here on earth, but all we can do is come back to the God who is good, the God who loves us no matter what is happening in our lives. The God who has given us Jesus, he gave his own son to die in our place when we didn't deserve any love or kindness. 
He is good. There is no doubt. Can you imagine how you could begin to face this life without God? How could you face the trials and the possible tragedy that might come? If you didn't know a loving God, if you didn't have new birth and new life through Christ, if that's you here tonight, I urge you to look to God, the great creator, the source of all good, the loving God who sent his son to die for your sin so that you might be forgiven, that you might know new birth in him, that you might know hope and look forward to the crown of life. As we conclude, let's remember what James is telling us. In all the varied situations in our lives, let's remember it is temporary. We're not defined by what we have in this life. Will you lift your eyes from this world on what you have and look to God and what He has promised for you? His eternal and sure unchanging gift. And when temptation comes, will you ask for his help and strength to resist it? Will you throw off any wrong desires, not giving them a foothold in your life, not letting them drag you away? And when you face trials, difficulties, terrible times in your life, how will you respond? Because we have a choice. Yes, absolutely, we need God's help, but we have a choice. There are two contrasting paths that have been laid out in what James has taught us. Testing might lead to endurance and perseverance, which brings maturity and looks forward to the sure hope of the crown of life for eternity. Or testing might lead to temptation, and desire might drag us away to sin, and sin may lead to death, a diminishing of life for the Christian, eternal punishment for those who do not know and love God. We need to build James' teaching into our lives, particularly when the waters are calm, so that when the storms come, we are as ready as we can be with God's help to face the trials that come to us. We need to find our true joy in the eternal gift God has given us, not the temporary things of this life. Alec Mateer again says, we live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our hearts. What is it that will shape your life as you go out from here tonight?